Welcome to the Audio Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Dr. Susan Schultz with highlights for April 2011. Treatment will be featured in a review of repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation for depression and in a clinical trial of nicotine replacement for agitation in schizophrenia patients who smoke. We'll also take a look at bipolar disorder with premenstrual exacerbation. Two other articles are both about methods developed to comply with government standards. One of them was a large Army study measuring outcomes of mental health screening of soldiers before deployment. The other study was a response to an FDA requirement for a functionally relevant measure in clinical trials of drugs to improve cognition in schizophrenia. These last two articles have been selected as meriting CME for readers who subscribe to the AJP CME course program. Each month, brief companion exams are created for three of the most influential articles from the issue. By reading the articles and completing the online exam, individuals can earn up to one AMA PRA Category 1 credit per article. This activity is sponsored by the American Psychiatric Association. To subscribe, click on the CME link at our homepage, ajp.psychiatryonline.org. We'll start the April highlights with our treatment and psychiatry feature. Mark George and Robert Post review daily left prefrontal repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation for acute treatment of medication-resistant depression. The article begins with a case of a 55-year-old actress with recurrent unipolar depression. Over her lifetime, she'd made several suicide attempts and had a repeated pattern of partial to complete response to antidepressants, followed by a gradual loss of efficacy. She refused ECT because she was concerned it might affect her ability to remember her lines. She enrolled in a randomized trial of repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation, or RTMS. She was assigned to the sham treatment and had no improvement. She was then offered open-label treatment and remission occurred after four weeks. When her depressive symptoms returned three years later, she requested another course of RTMS. She received 45 treatments of daily left prefrontal TMS. After six weeks of daily treatment, her depression score had improved by 65%. RTMS for depression was approved by the FDA in 2008. In a large government-sponsored trial, active treatment was superior to the sham treatment. The remission rate was 15% compared to 5% with sham treatment. A typical session is 20 to 40 minutes long. Treatments are given five days a week for four to eight weeks. The minimum amount of energy needed to make the thumb contract is called the motor threshold. Because it's easy to generate and varies widely across individuals, the motor threshold is used to measure general cortical excitability. Most studies report the TMS intensity, or dose, as a function of individual motor threshold, not as an absolute physical value. In general, a stronger pulse, for example, 110 to 120% of the motor threshold, results in a greater activation of the CNS tissue. Brain imaging has been used to see the changes generated by RTMS. When used for depression, 
TMS is known to have many molecular effects similar to those seen with ECT, such as increased monoamine turnover, increased brain-derived neurotropic factor, and normalization of the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis. There's also accumulating evidence that prefrontal RTMS in depressed patients changes cortical and limbic activity, as well as regulatory circuits. No one has yet linked these changes directly to the antidepressant effects of the treatment. In general, RTMS appears safe. Inducing a seizure is the primary concern. There have been fewer than 20 reported cases of seizures induced with TMS among several thousand patients and healthy volunteers. Published safety data on the proper intensity, frequency, and number of stimuli have helped minimize seizures. Of the reported seizures, the majority were in healthy volunteers receiving TMS to the motor cortex. This is the most epileptogenic region of the cortex. They were also receiving trains of stimulation outside the limits now suggested. Headaches are the most common complaint, but there was no difference in headache frequency between TMS and sham treatment in recent large trials. Neurocognitive functioning has not shown any enduring negative effects. Right after a session, patients are able to drive home or return to work. The procedure itself can cause some pain in the scalp. This usually subsides after the first few sessions. An anterior and lateral position of the coil over the prefrontal cortex is associated with a better clinical response. A meta-analysis and a prospective clinical trial suggest that using a higher number of stimulations is more effective. With safety and comfort, researchers have now delivered in one week doses that were formally given in a full course. One study delivered daily, high-dose, left prefrontal RTMS to depressed adults who had additional medical problems and were taking antidepressant medications. The patients tolerated 6,000 stimuli per day and 30,000 per week at 120% of their motor threshold. No side effects or problems were observed. It's also been observed that patients who were systematically crossed over from high-frequency to low-frequency treatment responded to one of the frequencies preferentially. Early on, researchers noted that RTMS didn't work well for older patients. A study that included brain imaging showed that the reduced efficacy might be due to more prefrontal atrophy in elderly patients. Therefore, they needed a higher magnetic field to overcome the added distance from the coil. An open-label study and a randomized trial in geriatric depression showed good responses to doses that were sufficient to bridge the extra distance. Most patients with recurrent depression appeared to need either maintenance medication or maintenance TMS. Several groups have performed maintenance TMS, but there haven't been any controlled clinical trials. Because of the risk of seizure, RTMS should be performed only in a medical setting under the supervision of a licensed physician. When it's being used to treat acute depression, that physician should be a psychiatrist. As currently performed, most psychiatrists can learn how to deliver TMS without extensive advanced training. Meta-analyses have identified clinical features that appear to be associated with a greater response to RTMS. These include younger age, lack of major resistance to antidepressants, and an absence of psychotic features. Currently, 
One might use RTMS to treat depression in patients who have tried at least one antidepressant medication and some form of targeted psychotherapy, but didn't respond adequately or couldn't tolerate the medication. In patients who respond to RTMS, one should attempt to maintain the remission with oral medications. If the patient relapses or doesn't tolerate the medication, one can reapply RTMS. Our first research article is by Major Christopher Warren and colleagues in the U.S. Army. They report on a cohort study of the effectiveness of mental health screening and coordination of in-theater care prior to deployment in Iraq. Since World War II, psychiatric screening in the military has focused on identifying and disqualifying only soldiers with gross psychiatric disorders. In 2006, media reports asserted that military psychiatrists and other medical providers were sending mentally unfit service members into combat zones. Later that year, the Department of Defense developed a minimum mental health standard for deployment. This policy provided guidelines on what conditions can be managed in combat zones and what level of treatment can be provided during a deployment. Some individuals are barred from deployment. Those with other psychiatric conditions are assessed by using an algorithm based on symptom severity, duration of treatment, stability, and level of care required. Congress recently expanded the requirement for screening to include post-traumatic stress disorder, suicidal tendencies, and other behavioral issues. However, there were virtually no scientific studies to guide the military in screening personnel. A mental health screening program was developed. It was then evaluated by comparing three infantry brigades that received the screening with three brigades that didn't because they were sent to Iraq before the screening was fully implemented. All of the brigades were sent to the same region of central Iraq as part of the surge of forces from 2007 to 2008. Their combat exposures were similar, and the tours of duty all lasted 15 months. Before deployment, each soldier in the screening program completed a behavioral health screening form as part of the medical evaluation. The form was designed to identify any of the criteria specified by the Department of Defense. Service members being treated for psychotic or bipolar disorders are not deployable. Those taking medications that require laboratory monitoring also can't be deployed. Service members with significant ongoing mental health conditions must be stable for at least three months before deployment. Central Command for the Iraq and Afghanistan Combat Theaters also requires that a soldier taking a psychotropic medication must have taken it for at least 90 days before deployment, not have any changes in the dose during that period, and be tolerating it well. Soldiers meeting any of their criteria were referred for mental health evaluation. The mental health provider could judge the soldier to be fit for deployment, unfit, or fit but on a deployment-limiting psychiatric medication. This last designation was given if the soldier had been on a new psychiatric medication for less than 90 days. If the soldier was determined to be fit for deployment on a stable drug regimen, a three-month supply of medication was provided, and the soldier's mental health condition was followed up in the combat theater. During the deployment, outcomes were monitored through a standardized reporting and tracking system. It required all mental health teams to maintain statistical information on their encounters. 
combat and operational stress reactions were defined as those related to deployment, and psychological or mental disorders were defined as disorders or issues that would occur in the absence of deployment. Duty limitations were also recorded. These include temporary actions such as weapons restrictions, permanent limitations such as restriction to the forward operating base, and medical evacuation for mental health conditions. In the six brigades, more than 20,000 soldiers were deployed and about half received pre-deployment mental health screening. About 8% of these soldiers required further mental health evaluation. For soldiers receiving mental health treatment who were considered fit for deployment, the treatment was coordinated with care in the combat theater. Some of them were delayed one to two months while their drug regimen was stabilized. A quarter of the soldiers taking medication were deemed unfit to deploy because of the medication, but they were stable in performing their required duties without impairment. Thus, they were eligible for consideration of a waiver. This subgroup included soldiers who were taking stimulants for attention deficit problems, soldiers who had recently started taking an antidepressant but were otherwise stable, and those who were taking low doses of atypical antipsychotics for insomnia. The waiver request to Central Command specified the length of time they'd been taking the medication and outlined how the soldier would be monitored by mental health services during deployment. All of these soldiers received waivers. During the deployment, the division mental health team and the brigade surgeon ensured that each of them was seen at least monthly. All of them remained stable, functioned well, and successfully completed their deployment. Outcomes in all of the cohorts were tracked during the first six months of deployment. Soldiers in the screened brigades had significantly lower rates of clinical contacts for combat stress other psychiatric disorders, and suicidal ideation. The rates of combat stress reactions were 16% for the screened brigades and 22% for the unscreened brigades. For other psychiatric disorders, the rates were 3 and 13% respectively. The cohorts that received mental health screening also had lower rates of occupational impairment and air evacuation for behavioral health reasons. Another follow-up study comes from the Systematic Treatment Enhancement Program for Bipolar Disorder, or STEP-BD. Rodrigo Diaz and colleagues present findings from a longitudinal follow-up of bipolar disorder in women with premenstrual exacerbation. In women with bipolar disorder, the postpartum period and the menopause transition increase their vulnerability to relapse. Hormonal fluctuations during the menstrual cycle might also influence the clinical course of bipolar disorder. This study examined the number of illness episodes, time to relapse, and subsyndromal symptoms over a year in women with bipolar disorder who reported premenstrual exacerbations of their illness. The participants were women in Step BD who were between the ages of 18 and 40. They were asked whether they typically had depression symptoms or mood swings around the time of their menstrual periods. Almost 200 women provided a positive response. They were categorized as having premenstrual exacerbation and were followed prospectively for at least a year. A group of women with bipolar disorder who didn't have premenstrual exacerbation were also assessed over the same interval. Illness status at baseline was determined by using the Affective Disorder Evaluation. The Clinical Monitoring Form for Mood Disorders was used at subsequent visits. 
Both of these instruments consist of the mood modules from the structured clinical interview for DSM-4. The ratings were used to categorize the participants according to eight clinical states. Four syndromal states correspond to the DSM-4 mood states, depression, mania, hypomania, and mixed. Patients who had two or fewer symptoms for at least a week, but less than eight weeks, were considered recovering. Those who were euthymic for eight weeks or more were categorized as recovered. The women who didn't meet the criteria for any of these states, but had three or four symptoms of depression or mania, were classified as being in a subsyndromal state. Follow-up assessments were conducted at least every three months. Relapse was tracked in the women who were considered recovered at baseline. One definition of relapse was the presence of a syndromal mood episode at a follow-up visit. A broader definition was also examined. It included both syndromal and subsyndromal states, since residual symptoms have been associated with functional impairment. Rapid cycling was defined as four or more mood episodes during a 12-month period consistent with DSM-IV. Women with bipolar 1 disorder constituted approximately 60% of both the women with and without premenstrual exacerbation. Approximately half in each group met criteria for a comorbid psychiatric illness. Other aspects of psychiatric history differed between groups. At study entry, women with premenstrual exacerbation were less likely to be recovered, and they were more likely to be in a depressive episode or subthreshold illness state. They also reported retrospectively a higher number of bipolar episodes during the previous year. The proportion of women using psychotropic medication did not differ between groups, but those without premenstrual exacerbation were almost twice as likely to be using SSRI or SNRI antidepressants. During the follow-up year, the women with premenstrual exacerbation had more mood episodes overall, including more depressive episodes. They did not have more episodes of mania or hypomania and were not more likely to have rapid cycling. Time to relapse was compared in the women who were recovered at baseline. This group included about 130 women, approximately half with and half without premenstrual exacerbation. No significant difference was seen between these groups in the time until relapse to a syndromal episode. However, when relapse was defined as including both syndromal and subsyndromal episodes, the women with premenstrual exacerbation relapsed sooner on average than those without. With this broader definition, the median time to relapse was four and a half months in the group with premenstrual exacerbation compared to eight and a half months in the group without it. Cox regression models included the number of illness episodes reported retrospectively for the year preceding baseline. When this variable was added to the model, the significant effect of premenstrual exacerbation on the time to relapse was lost. The number of retrospectively reported episodes during the previous year became the only significant predictor of a greater hazard for relapse. Use of an SSRI or SNRI antidepressant was not a predictor of relapse in these models. Because subsyndromal episodes were so common in the group with premenstrual exacerbation, a post hoc analysis was used to determine overall symptom severity during follow up. 
For depressive symptoms, there was a significant effect on severity of premenstrual exacerbation and time, but no significant interaction. For mood elevation, there was a significant effect of premenstrual exacerbation, but the effect of time and the interaction were not significant. These results indicate that premenstrual exacerbation adversely affects the severity of both depressive symptoms and mood elevation. Now for our other treatment study. Michael Allen and colleagues tested the effect of nicotine replacement therapy on agitation in smokers with schizophrenia in a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled study. Episodic agitation and aggression are common and significant problems for patients with schizophrenia, putting them at risk for physical and chemical restraint. Acute nicotine deprivation and withdrawal in smokers has been shown to increase aggressive behavior, and patients with schizophrenia have high rates of tobacco use. The participants in this study were 40 smokers with schizophrenia who'd been admitted to a psychiatric emergency service of a university hospital. To be eligible for the study, patients had to have a significant level of agitation. This was defined as a score of 14 or higher on the excited component of the positive and negative syndrome scale. It consists of five items, excitement, hostility, tension, uncooperativeness, and poor impulse control. Nicotine dependence was assessed with the Fagerstam test for nicotine dependence. These scores range from 0 to 10, and a score of at least 6 was required for the study. Other than the study treatments, the patients received usual care. Those who were already receiving appropriate treatment continued it. Those who were not already receiving treatment or were not receiving adequate treatment received 5 to 10 milligrams of olanzapine orally or intramuscularly or 5 milligrams of haloperidol intramuscularly. The patients were also randomly assigned to either nicotine replacement therapy or placebo. The nicotine replacement was a 21 milligram transdermal patch and the placebo was a patch without nicotine. The patch was placed by a nurse, and both the patient and investigator were blind to the treatment. The nicotine and placebo groups differed in their history of aggression. Nine of the 20 patients in the nicotine group had a history of aggression in the past week, compared with only two in the placebo group. The primary outcome measure was the score on the agitated behavior scale. Ratings were made at baseline, four hours after admission, and at 24 hours. Agitation diminished over time in both groups, and the overall difference in change between groups fell just short of statistical significance. However, the reduction in scores at both 4 and 24 hours were significantly greater for nicotine than for placebo. The reduction in agitation was 33% greater in the nicotine group at 4 hours and 23% greater at 24 hours. A lower baseline score for nicotine dependence was associated with a better response to nicotine. Scores from 6 to 8 were classified as low nicotine dependence, and scores of 9 or 10 were considered indicative of high dependence. For patients with low dependence, there was a significant difference between nicotine and placebo in the reduction in agitation at both 4 and 24 hours. For patients with high nicotine dependence, the nicotine and placebo groups had similar reductions at both points.
it's possible that the 21 milligram patch was inadequate for patients with greater nicotine dependence. Transdermal delivery of nicotine was chosen for its predictability, but nicotine gum should also be effective, and it has a rapid onset. It may be necessary to combine gum with the patch or otherwise obtain higher doses to better manage agitation in this patient population. Given the frequency and hazards of physical restraint and the limitations of available treatments for agitated patients, nicotine replacement therapy could have an important effect on their care. The editorial by Mark Schechter reinforces the potential importance of nicotine replacement therapy in the psychiatric emergency department. Agitation and violence are major problems in both emergency departments and psychiatric inpatient settings. In a study of 400 psychiatric patients seen in emergency departments, over half showed evidence of agitation, with a quarter receiving medication for this reason and 6% being physically restrained. Nicotine deprivation has been found to increase agitation in smokers, especially in those with high baseline levels of irritability. The rate of smoking is approximately 70% in patients with schizophrenia, but in a recent study of psychiatric inpatient units, none of the patients who were smokers received a diagnosis of nicotine dependence or withdrawal. Nicotine replacement therapy was prescribed for only 56% of them. Those who received nicotine replacement were compared with smokers who didn't, and with non-smokers. Smokers who did not receive nicotine replacement had higher levels of irritability and agitation, were more likely to crave cigarettes, and were twice as likely to be discharged against medical advice. Moreover, a trend was observed for higher rates of lorazepam use and a greater need for seclusion in this group. Notably, the researchers found that even when nicotine replacement therapy was prescribed, smokers typically received just under half the amount of nicotine they would have received from smoking. The finding by Allen and colleagues that nicotine replacement therapy significantly lowered agitation levels in smokers with schizophrenia is a wake-up call. Clinicians, emergency departments, and psychiatric inpatient services should systematically assess and proactively treat nicotine dependence. It seems likely that decreased agitation in patients with schizophrenia could lead to a reduced need for restraint and seclusion, fewer assaults and injuries, and lower doses of medication to control agitation. The study needs to be replicated with larger samples and over a longer time. The finding that patients with greater nicotine dependence didn't respond as robustly at a dose of 21 milligrams suggests that they may have needed higher doses. While the focus of this study was on smokers with schizophrenia, one would expect that proactive treatment with nicotine replacement could decrease agitation in smokers with other psychiatric and substance use disorders. The benefits for psychiatric patients who smoke are likely to go beyond changes in agitation. Smokers who aren't craving cigarettes and having physical manifestations of nicotine withdrawal are likely to feel better. This improvement in patient experience may have implications for the treatment alliance and for adherence with other recommended treatments. Efforts to improve cognition in schizophrenia led to our next study. Michael Green and colleagues report, on an evaluation of functionally meaningful measures for clinical trials of cognition enhancement in schizophrenia. 
the FDA requires that drugs for improving cognition in schizophrenia be evaluated with two complementary measures. These are referred to as co-primary outcomes. A drug for this use must show improvement in cognitive performance and on a functionally relevant measure. The FDA didn't provide firm guidance on the definition of a functionally meaningful outcome measure. Currently, there are no validated measures for this purpose. The National Institute of Mental Health initiated measurement and treatment research to improve cognition in schizophrenia, or MATRIX, an extension of this project tested potential co-primary measures. A committee solicited nominations for potential co-primary measures, and it selected several for testing. Three properties were examined. The first was a psychometric performance, test-retest reliability, inter-rater reliability, and utility as a repeated measure. The second property was the validity of the measure, its correlation with cognitive performance and community functioning. The third aspect was the practicality and tolerability of the test, ease of setup, tester training, amount of missing data, duration, and subject satisfaction. 144 patients with a DSM-4 diagnosis of schizophrenia completed assessments at baseline and at a four-week follow-up. They were clinically stable with no significant psychotropic medication changes in the preceding two months. Three of the tests involved performance. The independent living scales require the examinee to solve problems, demonstrate knowledge, or perform a task related to several areas of everyday life. The test of adaptive behavior in schizophrenia includes five areas of performance, plus observation of social skills. The University of California San Diego Performance-Based Skills Assessment uses role-playing to evaluate life skills. Short forms of these three measures were also tested, saving about 15 minutes in each case. For the latter two instruments, short forms were readily available. For the independent living scales, the performance factor was used as the short form. Two other instruments were tested. These consisted of interviews. The cognitive assessment interview is derived from the clinical global impression of cognition in schizophrenia and the Schizophrenia Cognition Rating Scale. From the combined items, 10 were selected that performed best. Just one item is completed in the Clinical Global Impression of Cognition in Schizophrenia. It was included to assess whether clinical raters can reliably rate cognitive impairment solely on the basis of a clinical symptom interview. Highest priority was given to test-retest reliability and correlation with cognitive performance. The full forms of the performance-based measures did the best overall. All of the full measures and their short forms had acceptable test-retest reliability, and three tests were above the threshold, the independent living scales, the UCSD performance-based skills assessment, and the cognitive assessment interview. The relationship to cognitive performance varied substantially. The measures based on performance showed much more overlap with cognitive performance than those based on interviews. The differences weren't as pronounced for utility as a repeated measure, and all of the tests were well tolerated. Correlations with community functioning were relatively low in all cases. 
the short forms of the performance-based measures had lower reliability and lower shared variance with cognitive functioning compared to the longer versions. The FDA doesn't require that a single co-primary measure be identified. The committee considered the UCSD performance-based skills assessment the leader among the full measures. It had several strong features, good test-retest reliability, excellent shared variance with cognitive performance, good utility as a repeated measure, and reasonable tolerability and practicality. The committee considered the short versions of the Test of Adaptive Behavior in Schizophrenia and the UCSD Performance-Based Skills Assessment to have an advantage because their short forms are self-contained. This concludes our audio highlights of the April issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. Please visit our website, hap.psychiatryonline.org, for the complete versions of these and other articles, including author affiliations and financial disclosures. We also welcome comments. They can be emailed to Jane Weaver. Her email address is jweaver at psychpsych.org. Next month, our audio topics will include dependence on prescription pain medication, the effect of health insurance reform on coverage of mental disorders, predictors of suicide attempts and self-injury in depressed adolescents, and a follow-up of deep brain stimulation for depression. We hope that you'll join us. Thank you. Thank you.